Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and Gear with coaches Skip Hill and Andrew Barry. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK for additional savings. Third-party tested, great supplements. Hit me up if you have any questions. We're also brought to you by supplementsource.ca for our Canadians. Uh, great deals that change week to week. Strom Sports Nutrition for uh, those of you in the UK. And, of course, go to Amino Asylum. Use our code THINK, but I can't tell you that link, uh, basically, for a lot of reasons. Anyway, we got a great topic today. Um, we're going to talk about arm training. You guys have freaking loved uh, all the training talk that we've done. So I don't know which one of you guys want to get started with this. We're also going to take all your questions, uh, leave us questions for the next show. And if you're not subscribed yet, let me encourage you to, because we have several bodybuilding podcasts that come out each week, tons of education uh, and entertainment from coaches like this, tons of experience. So where do we go with this gentleman? Well, where uh, do I you know start? Where do you begin? Yeah, yeah I want, I'm not I want, a very good example. This, Okay, well, I'm not a very good example because I don't have very good body parts, but I could get by. It's like of of all my less crappy body parts, my arms are less crappy than everything else. You've got so some arms. They've on never you. really taken. Well, compared to everything else, well, I'll, t- I'll take that. When he's but the only guy it, in the room, they're they're pretty darn good, you know. Yeah, exactly. If no, I pose down that, with my man. kids, I'm Dude. gonna win. Skip, you are much bigger than you look on the internet, number one, and your arms definitely stand out, even at like the Arnold Expo. People don't get it. And I think, yeah, they they just, they, they, you, you, you're, it's your camera perspective. You don't look as big as you are, but you've got some really good arms on you. So I think you should tell us, how did you do that? Well, first, XOXO, I appreciate that. That was, thank you. No, um, let's see. Well, and this is where I was going to go with you, Andrew, and you too, Scott, to to find out where you guys put, like, like to start off with where you guys put your arm training relative to everything else. Because I treat it as, as kind of secondary. I don't like to finish with arms as an example. Uh, that's why push-pull works for me because my arms aren't a priority. And I think when arms aren't a priority, that's that's cool. But if they were a priority, they wouldn't. For me, they wouldn't grow very well that way. So I tend to put them on, a, on their own day later in the week. And I don't consider it a rest day, but it's not one of those um, leg or back days that is so incredibly uh, demanding on my CNS that my HRV is going to drop considerably after I get done training that night while I sleep. So they don't take as much of a, as much of a priority. But here's the funny thing about arm training, and I learned this about 15, 12 or 15 years ago when I realized, okay, I have some really crappy body parts that I need to put arms, you know, it's kind of, I'm not on the back burner, but not as a priority. And when I did that, they grew more. And what I mean is I didn't train them as frequently and they grew more. Hmm. And that's what really got me to the point with my clients to look at their arm training, because you guys have probably seen this too. When arms are a priority, what's the first thing people do? They train them more frequently. They train them with more volume, typically. And then their answer is, when I ask, well, did how did your arms respond? Did they grow? Well, they kind of, yeah, oh, not much. Elbows. That's elbows typically the answer. Yeah. No. yeah they start to hurt. <laughs> exactly. So <clears throat> there has never, I've never seen a direct correlation between increasing arm work, for some, but across the board, more work, or more frequency 
doesn't bring usually bring people's arms up if they're a weakness. And I kind of think that the reason for that is they were already overtrained. Arms, I think, are easy to overtrain. Yeah. And I think that's why when people struggle with them as a weakness, their response to do more work is counterproductive. It doesn't seem, I mean, it, it, it seems the intuitive thing to do, but it's not. And it ends up being counterproductive. So I will pull my client's uh, the first thing I do if their arms are weak is I pull their arm work back, their frequency back and their volume back. And they hate it and they usually fight it. But then they start to see the increases. And the other thing with arms is when you see progress, you're not seeing it like you would in compound exercises, like your squats, like your uh, rows and, and deads and things like that. You're seeing an incremental increase of a couple reps here or there or five pounds on you know, dumbbell curls or 10 pounds on tricep extensions. So there isn't this huge, dramatic, oh, yeah, they're growing. So I don't know. Have you guys seen the same thing? Yes and no. So no. I feel <laughs> well. No, no. And here's where I'm going with this: is that um, I feel like arms is one of those body parts that you need the variation from time to time and volume. Meaning, like I might go four weeks with doing two or three sets for buys and tries that whole uh, weekly. You know, nine sets total in three weeks, and then I might actually add a dedicated arm day for the next three weeks and hit them with more like you know 10 12 working sets i feel like that variation going back and forth and I, and I feel like you can use this with all body parts because you know we always talk about improvement progressive overload being a finite thing where you're just adding more pounds to the bar right well with arms by the time you hit 25 26 you're probably about as strong on your buys and tries you know press downs, curls, you know, not your, not your, your, um, close grip benches, but like you're going to read the ceiling for arm strength gets capped pretty quickly. While as like you alluded to skip your, your ceiling for say your leg press, your squats, your deadlifts, your rows, your presses, those can keep going up for, you know, into your forties even, you know, yeah. you get where I'm going with that. So I feel like yeah. you need to change some other factor. You need to change something in terms to in terms of progressing and for me that's volume so i like to alternate periods of time with lower volume with periods of time with slightly higher volume and even those higher volume days or weeks could be like i'll do one exercise at the end of chest day for triceps i'll do one exercise at the end of my back for for uh for biceps and then i'll have a dedicated arm day like you said like end of the week I don't count it as a rest day. I don't really count it as a full training day. Like I'm not pushing a whole bunch of intra workout and insulin and I'm not feeding myself. Like I'm getting ready to do a two hour uh, leg workout. It's literally probably a 45 minute session. I usually do calves that same day. I do abs that same day. I probably do cardio right afterwards. So it's like one of those days where it's like, did I train? Eh, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know right. what to call it. And I, and I'm big on chasing the pump with arms. I, and for the reason of tendonitis, you know, like I do I just don't think, continuously trying to lift more weight in those, um, you know, isolation exercises is good for your triceps because you're already doing compound exercises like you alluded to with your presses, your rows, et cetera. So I think, I do think, you know, just to reiterate, change in volume over time, uh, whether up or down. Okay. And, um, you know, not trying to go too heavy. Yeah. I will say this. I remember, so my arms, my biceps specifically, hadn't been a stronger body part. Like just genetically, they they didn't seem to be great. And all the guys that I knew that had really good arms had said, oh, I don't really go heavy 
with arms, right? And I've heard that a lot. But then I looked at it, like my, my friend VJ. VJ had like biceps and pecs were like two of his great muscles, which they're they're good muscles to have as a bodybuilder because mm-hmm. they're those show muscles. You know what I mean? You like you look awesome in a t-shirt when you've got huge pecs mm-hmm. and biceps. So but then I watched him train and like him not going heavy was still heavy to me. So I realized like, okay, so it still means I need to go heavier than I am. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not saying mm-hmm. like, let's try to, I'm not like getting like the, the Olympic bar out and putting 225 on it, but I did find pushing myself a little bit more helped. So I, I would say mm-hmm. that, that said though, I, I do agree with both you guys across the board. I think arms are generally highly overtrained, especially you get a guy who's doing push pull legs and he's like, Hey, can I put a seventh day in? And it's just arms. And I'm thinking to myself, you hit, so you, and this is the way I break it down too. I'm like, so on your chest day, you hit chest. And when you hit, when you hit your chest and then you need every compound movement, you're hitting your triceps and then you're doing shoulders. You're doing overhead press. You're hitting your triceps and then you're doing direct tricep work. And then you do that again, you know, five days later, uh, you know, how many sets is that total? Now we've got like a dozen sets and you want to add an arm day on top of that. I don't think that that's the answer. I found for myself, it's it's been a mixed bag. Like you said, Andrew, it's not something that's ever been written in stone. Sometimes sometimes I'll give them more more attention and other times I try to back off. I found that if I do go for too long, too hard, that the elbows do take a beating. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you guys this, as far as the compound training, because I've got my own theories on this, and it's better when we don't agree. (laughs) I think that as we advance through our years of training with heavy compound movements, especially for back, chest, and shoulders, obviously for, for pulling and pushing, I think that the heavier those exercises get, your rowing, your pressing, your overhead pressing, I think that starts to add considerably to arm size. Absolutely. And I think for anybody who disagrees, not you guys, but if anybody listening disagrees, because I wondered why you were explaining <clears throat> about how much, you know, how much involvement your triceps get with pressing or how much involvement your biceps get with pulling, that some people would go, oh, no, it's, it's secondary. It's really not that much. I'll tell you this. To anybody who says that, take a month off of training or when you take a month off of training because you're sick or whatever, and you come back to heavier pressing, or you come back to heavier pulling, you tell me that your tries aren't sore that first workout back after he- after pressing heavier with, with chest and shoulders or even with pulling. And, and pulling is a little bit different in the sense that it's a little bit more brachialis than it is, you know, unless you're doing a lot of undergrip stuff. And a lot of undergrip stuff is just, quite frankly, I think is, is more of a, there's a vulnerability there for really messing up your biceps if your angle of pull isn't isn't right and even advanced guys even pros and i can think of one two twelve in particular who you know the angle was just obviously off because if you're rowing heavy the bicep shouldn't be in a position of to be vulnerable but if you tear it it most definitely was so the reason i asked you guys that is because i do think that over time i think that a lot of arm development as we advance does come doesn't mean you don't still need direct arm work but i think it backs up what we're saying that because i agree i don't think arm training needs to be heavy i think if you're curling for those guys who are curling 225 i don't see the arm size involved in that and i see you asking for trouble yeah with poundages like that there are exceptions there are the justin harris's who can do 225 with lying tricep extensions and i just always look 
at that in, in, with such awe because I want to do that. And there is no way that I'm going to be able to ever do that without ripping something. Yeah, I, I can't argue more. with any of that, man. When I tried to yeah. start growing my back, I noticed that my biceps came up with it. There's, there's no question about it. So in terms of like exercise selection, are there, well, you know, like we did with chest, I know like we kind of disagreed a little bit about how to, um, and I think you and me disagreed and Scott was kind of in the middle because he'll do one thing sometimes and then he'll do kind of the other way the other time, which is great. How do you set up your arm workout? Do you always do all triceps first? Do you open with a particular exercise, a particular type of movement, or do you do, I mean, like for instance, just to throw something out there like some people they train all triceps first then they train all biceps uh, afterwards some people they like to alternate a biceps exercise and then do a triceps exercise and then some people like to superset a buy and try exercise set to set and get that really nice pump in the arms as you're doing the whole workout where do you stand on on like say those options skip i always do buys first and it's a good question because i've changed i say i always over the last probably three or four years i always do biceps first and the main reason is because I'm trying to protect my elbows when it comes time to do tricep work. Now, the exception to that is obviously if I'm on a push-pull, but I don't usually do that. If I have a dedicated arm day, it's biceps prior to triceps because once I have blood in there and, you know, basically my elbows are warm and my triceps tendon feels less vulnerable. And when I get into tricep work, it only takes me two or three warm-up sets. I'm ready to go for tries. So for me, it's a safer or a better alternative. And I also think that for the older demographic, I think it's a good way to go. Now, you can't come into biceps with guns ablazing and you know you have to make sure that you're plenty warm. Move in. I, you got, we've talked about this before. I have my openers. So I will always open triceps with press downs. <clears throat> Maybe a different, it might be a rope, it might be a V-bar, it might be an easy mm-hmm. curl type bar. But it's going to be a press on because that is going to get my elbows warm with the least amount of vulnerability. I would never go to like a, I, I skull hate crusher. the term skull, skull crusher. Yeah, I, but yeah. but that's, everybody knows what it is. I get that. Everyone knows Calm that. line tricep extent. Yeah. Is it also but I think a French that press? A more, is that the, is that okay, is, there you go. Yeah, you're going like old school. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, in old school, I always thought when I would hear French press, I would think that that was overhead versus lying down. But whatever, uh, okay. that's, I may be completely wrong on that. But the point is, is there to open with something like that, I think is as, asking for problems. An overhead dumbbell extension, I think, yeah. is asking for problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it comes down to, as well, the angle. And where the elbow is, the upper arm in relation to the torso, because that angle has to be more open when it's closed. And, and it's always difficult to explain when we're through words when we're talking about this. But if the if the angle between the upper arm and the torso is more closed, then the then the tricep the tricep tendon, the elbow itself is in a more vulnerable position. When it's open, then it's it's far less of a chance that you're going to be putting as much stress. And I say, I would go as far as to say this. I think the vast majority of people who have torn a tricep or had really bad tendonitis from doing any type of overhead dumbbell work, that that angle was not as open as it should be, whether it's skull crushers, whether it's overhead dumbbell extensions, that sort of thing. So I tend to leave those movements for the middle to the end 
of the workout. And I am not, one more thing too, I'm not a big fan of close grip benching for triceps. I think that you're getting so much tricep involvement on your shoulder and chest pressing that I, to me, it's redundant. I figure you're already pressed. Now, sometimes I'll finish with dips, but if I'm finishing with dips on a machine, like a hammer strength or something, I'm more focused on that, that finishing contraction than I am really moving a lot of weight because to me, I might as well just be pressing. I'm with Skip that I like to warm the tricep. Well, I'd like to warm the, the arm up first with uh, like some sort of cable, whether it be like a like a cable curl. Maybe I'll do that or like a, uh, a you know, a tricep rope extension or a V grip or whatever. I definitely want to start that out then going straight into a compound movement. And uh, for me, I know that I've done it all sorts of ways. The thing I always go back to if I'm doing an arm day to answer your question, Andrew, I like to do one, well, like one bicep, then one tricep, one bicep, exercise. one tricep. Yeah. Exercise. One set or one exercise? One, one exercise. exercise. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. way do you I ever feel like. Another way? Absolutely. But I always seem okay. to go back to that. And I think the reason I like it is that say like I start with tricep extensions with a V grip and then I go to a, a cable curl, single arm, like almost like a. Uh, like a concentration type curl uh, with a cable. When I go back to like a heavier tricep movement next, then I feel like my triceps are super fresh. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. if I go from one tricep exercise to a second tricep exercise, then I feel like I, I don't have quite as much in me. So I, I've always liked that. I like to go from one tricep exercise to one bicep exercise, one tricep, one bicep. And by the end of that, my arms are just freaking pumped like hell. And like you were kind well, of saying at the beginning of the conversation, it's not a real taxing workout. It's a, it's like a fun yeah. workout. You know what I mean? By the time you're yeah. done, you don't feel like you're going to puke in a bucket. Well, I was, I was also going to add to that point of what you said about like you're fresh again. It's yeah. almost better than being fresh when you go back to that second tricep exercise because they're already like uh, pre uh, proprioceptive or whatever you want to call it. Like there's already that mind muscle connection. They're already, there's still some blood in there. They're pumped. So it's almost like better than walking in and having it being fresh because like you're, you're going to be stronger now that they're activated, they're warmed up, there's blood in there, but yeah. you've also had that rest because you've been training your biceps for four or five sets or whatever. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So do you, um, is that what you do? Let me, so I kind of do what I, I pick what I do for arms based on how many people are in the gym and where they are in relation to the machines and stuff I want to use. Right. Because, well, like my, I think my preferred usually, especially during contest prep when things are looking good and you know, you get the arms out and everything's getting veiny and pumped up. I love supersetting like a buy and try back and forth. I just getting that crazy pump, practicing your poses in between because like you guys, like you mentioned, be like, fun. I don't, it's fun because if you're not born with a great set of arms, like, like we all know, have friends that, and we've had guests on here, like Carlos, for instance, when we had Carlos, on, you, you've seen him up close, right? Scott, like his, oh, his yeah. tricep just hangs off the bone when it's cold. It's, it, it's pretty wacky. That's not me. That's, and I think that's not you guys either. You guys got to have blood in there to see him same way as me. Yeah. So, so yeah, I really like getting that really nice pump, uh, very conservative on the weight, very, very strict with the form. Um, I, I'm right there with you guys in terms of I open with a tricep press down. I open with some kind of bicep curl that doesn't put my wrist in a compromising position, meaning mm -hmm. like I would never start with a, pre a dumbbell preacher curl. 
Okay. Because yeah, that, that's right. one exercise I've torn my bicep on. Like I want to start with something that I can kind of work into opening my, my wrist up basically. So I'll do something more like a hammer curl, maybe a crossbody hammer curl, a cable curl where I'm using those flexible D handles instead of the, the metal ones so that I can kind of turn my wrist that, in a way that feels most yeah. comfortable. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think that's, that's the biggest thing when it comes to like tearing muscles is your wrist position uh, in relation to tearing muscles in the arms is your wrist position. Like I've never heard of anyone tearing a muscle doing a hammer curl, but I have heard of people tearing muscles doing preacher curls. I was one of them, you know? Sure. Um, and, and honestly, on that point, I've never heard of anyone tearing a tricep on a press down, but I've heard of plenty of people tearing them on a close grip bench press or oh, an yeah. over uh, a line extension, French press, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to point out, or I want to bring up one workout. It's one of John Meadows' arm workouts that I, I really loved. It was from one of his programs. I can't remember which one. But you take four exercises for biceps and four yep. exercises for triceps. And you literally do them one after another in an eight-set superset or eight-set giant set. Wow. Dude, I'm talking, you, you do three rounds of that. You get out of the gym in about 25, 30 minutes, and you are smoked. Your arms are full. It's it, it, it's a great feeling. It's not something you can do every single time. Like maybe do two, three weeks in a row and then put that away for a while. But yeah. it's um, it, it's definitely, uh, you, let's say you get a pump, especially if you're using some some Cialis and some insulin and some <laughs> pump agents too. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. My whole philosophy in everything in life is progression. If I'm not progressing, I am frustrated. You know, back in the 90s, I was known as the guy who put muscle mass on people who were stuck. There were things happening in the industry that weren't good. And in April of 2003, Doug and I started True Nutrition. We put the money into the jug, into the bag. That's where the money goes. We're in lab coats, we're in the back, we're manufacturing this stuff. So if it's not worthy enough for me, it's not worthy enough for my business partner, it's not worthy for you. Whether you're a bodybuilder, a triathlete, whoever you are, whatever your goal is, it is customized to you. I developed my reputation as a no BS kind of guy. I'm Dante Trudeau, half owner of True Nutrition. So and I'm with you I'm too. Skip, I was going to ask you, are you with us as well? It sounds like because Andrew said, you know, he really tries to get the focus on more of a pump with his arms. You know, we're I'm going to be clear, you know, as much as I like progressive overload, I'm not a fan of being like progressive overload with arms. You know, are are you looking? I know that you said you always get a good pump in the gym. Is that more of your focus trying to work with volume or is there an element of progression with your arm work? I would say that my arm work is a little bit more deliberate. I'm looking less for a pump because I'm going to get a pump anyway because uh-huh. I do pump quite easily. But I'm looking more for con- contract. Like I, I don't know if you guys have this or not. This is a good example. Okay, let's say we're using something like a a, a machine preacher curl that allows for, and, and I'd like to use a machine preacher curl that allows for a really strong contraction at the top and less of a more dramatic stretch at the bottom. I want the stretch, but I don't want that to be the main, let's put it this way. If it's a strive machine, yeah. I'm not going to load it so that it's heaviest in the stretch position. I'm going to load it so it's heaviest in the top position. Yeah. I want to be able to hold at the top, but this is the, this is why I focus on contraction. There are times vast majority of the time when I do exercises like that, that I will only be able to finish about 
two-thirds of the rep, and I might be able to do 10, 12 reps, but I can't finish to the top. So I'm, I train arms lighter in with exercises like that so that I can get full stretch, full squeeze, which I do on pretty much anything anyway, but I'm not coming at it from a power or overload position. Like you're saying, I'm looking for very deliberate stretch and squeeze more so than any other muscle groups that I'm training in the gym. Yeah. So Yes, I get the pump. I'm not really chasing. As here's an example, I will not train biceps and triceps alternating. I am way too OCD. Once I'm into a muscle group, I'm staying in that fucking muscle group, and I am not gonna finish until I'm done. Okay, and then really? I move on. I going back and forth to me. It it it's just my own personal thing. It's not like it's bad. It's not that. But to me, it would be distracting to me to go back and forth. So it's funny because you guys do that. You both do that. And I'm like, I love yeah, it. no, I would. If we were training hey, arms together yeah. and you said you want to do that, I'd be like, no, you're on your own. Bro. I could do it, though. Try. I mean, I've done. Yeah, I've done it every yeah. way. It's just the, the thing that I keep yeah. gravitating yeah. toward. You know, like that's yeah. that's just my jam. What, what can you, I ask you guys? And I don't care too much about the pump because it doesn't look very good because I have elbow sleeves on. And I always, I'll admit, this is the vanity part that, that I'm going to be completely transparent about. There are times when I'm in really good condition, I go, God, I wish I didn't have to wear my arm sleeves today. It looks so much better to, you know, to have, because, you know, we all have that vein component where you know you're going to look your best. Your arms are going to look their best when they're full blown. And I would even argue that training biceps after triceps is even better from a visual standpoint. Because when you train your buys and you got all that blood in there, you know you're looking at your tries. You're you're looking in your buys and, and they're like, okay, they're good, but yeah, my triceps are flat. There's no blood in there. I'll just throw this in there before so you there say is a vanity component. before you you said that, Andrew. Just we got to move mm -hmm. on soon. So uh, say yeah. what you were going to say, but also let's wrap this up with anything that we want to let people know. You know, sure. anything we haven't talked about on this topic. I don't know if I think is it. It might... that we think is important. All right. Well, all right. It was more of a general question about what you guys feel about like those prime and strive machines where you can overload a different part of the movement. Do you, th I don't know. I, this is just my lack of education on it. Do you think they're better for building muscle if you overload the lower part of the movement or the upper part of the movement versus does it make a difference? That's what I'm asking. Man, or is it just for strength? Man. Is it just for strength development? If you were weak in a particular phase of, the strength curve. That's that's what I'm asking because I don't think it makes a damn difference in terms of muscular growth. I think it. I don't think it does for muscle growth. I think it depends what you're looking for out of the exercise. In the sense that I would rather do. I mean, we're staying focused on arms here right now, but I'm trying to equate it to other movements too. And I don't think my philosophy would change with arms. I want, especially with bicep, I want that peak at the top. I want to be able to hold it. I rarely do rhythmic uh, reps when it comes to buys. It's a stretch and hold. It's a stretch. It, that's curl and hold, I guess, is a better. I hold I near mean. every rep on a curl. That's just something that I know that I've got control. I know that I'm not putting myself in a vulnerable position. So when it comes to strive or it comes to prime where you're overloading a part of that, I would always overload the top. There's more of a vulnerability at the bottom in the stretch position. Arguably, there's more fibers firing in the stretch position, so there's more potential for growth. But I don't know if that's all. I think that sounds great on paper, but I don't know if that's actually going to pan out uh, from a practical mm -hmm. standpoint when applied. Mm -hmm. 
I, I'll tell you what, whether it does or doesn't, I like it. Like, I enjoy that, and I feel like it makes the workout more fun to me. Do you know what I mean? Like Because there's, you, a, vari- there's a new variable? Exactly, because it's different. You know okay. what I mean? Same thing like when we all first got into bands, like back in the, you know, when John Meadows really started, you know, using bands, and then everybody else started using them. I had fun with bands just because it was different. You know what I mean? It, like, made the, mm-hmm. the workout exciting to, to feel the strength curve change. Okay. I'm over here rolling my eyes because I hate bands. I hate bands and I hate chains unless you're a power lifter. <laughs> yeah. But that's just well, me. You represent old school FBS too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, from a powerlifting standpoint, Dave I think that there's a lot me. of... Yeah. Dave's like, well, he's fired. Good thing he doesn't watch the mm-hmm. podcast. <laughs> you know where I do think they're really helpful? Like the certain machines that have like a crappy strength curve on them. Sure. If you put yeah, a band name on one. it... Uh, like my one. My, uh, my, what do you call it? Um, my converging chest press and many other chest presses where it's just, that, it's got like that, a funky feel. Uh-huh. It's got a funky feel. Okay. And I put the band well, on well, it and it, it changes There's a lot of it. rows that are like that too. There's a lot yeah. of rows like that too, where it's super heavy to get it going. And then it's just like, so you need some band, some band tension to try to make it equal when you get it all the way to get that peak contraction that you're so concerned with skip. So you can hold it and squeeze yeah. Eh? Eh. You just don't want to. I think Skip's eh. against it because it w- it became so popular and that everybody I, was using them. I wouldn't. Them. I don't disagree with that. There are some exercises. There are some exercises that I think it can be that I think it can be beneficial. I think that it is vastly overused. Not anymore. Uh, 100%. I, well, well, I oh no! Wait, the, re- I the reverse. The reverse uh, hack is still about, right? yeah, about yeah. two months ago or three months ago. I got in this argument because at my gym in Vermont, all these kids were doing two plates and they were reverse banding the hack squat. And when mm-hmm. you literally, you could drop the machine and the bands would stop it like halfway down, which tells you they're doing no weight for this, for the first half right. of that movement. And I was just kind of like, let me guess, like, you know, three high school kids, shirts off videos out trying to rep out, you know, two plates with the thickest elite FTS band they sell. And um, this kid got into it with me and he was trying to like, and I'm like, bro, my argument is not that bands don't have a place. My my argument is that bands do not have a place in your arsenal. If you cannot hack squat six plates minimum, (laughs) you can't back barbell squat four plates minimum. You can't bench press three plates minimum. Like, I think there's like, you don't need those tools until you reach a certain strength level where your strength becomes dangerous to your joints. Like, I think that's where you use that stuff. You don't start using it right off day one because you're going to inhibit your growth. What what are you going to do? Yeah, I could go off on a tangent. I won't. Yeah, I'm sure none There's of them were one, dealing with like some sort of back issue or knee issue. They, you know what I mean? They're they eighteen like, year old right. kids, right? Like, at the prime right. of their life. They were finding right. a way you know to I mean? put more weight on that. There's one exercise that I want to real quick give John credit for because the one exercise that cannot be argued or disputed that is better with a band is a banded dumbbell pullover. That was brilliant. Oh, that's a nice Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a pain in the butt because then people have to watch where you're going. You got to have it set up evenly so that the pull is not to one side or the other. But that was good. That was uh, it was brilliant for arms. I like to finish with something where I can like really get that like almost like a drop set type thing at the end. I don't always do that. But if maybe my last exercise is going to be like more of that pumping type thing and I've done it where uh, maybe I'll pick an exercise and then I'll superset it with a band that's connected to say like the floor where I can pull it up like this and squeeze, you know what I mean? 
Like just squeeze mm-hmm. the band in a hammer curl and then slowly let it down and squeeze just the band. So it's not even like using it with something else. Like do that exercise and then superset it with that at the end for five reps, three sets or whatever. I like to finish with hammer curls because they're a really good pump. But I also think they look really cool because I bring them up to my mouth. Yeah. And people I've had people take pictures of me. I think they're pretty impressed with my with my intensity. I think they I hopefully got posted online, I'm pretty sure. All right, let's cover some questions, guys. <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> so yes, uh, Vasco has, <laughs> says, uh, how would one go about assessing his or her uh, level of insulin resistance? Are fasted glucose levels a good indicator, or does one need to monitor insulin response following a meal at several intervals to better assess it? It's interesting because he messaged me the other day, uh, I, th- I don't know if it was before or after he made the, it was, I, okay, this was one day ago. So it was after he, he said he had high, uh, uh, fasted, uh, blood glucose. It was over a hundred and he just got back from a vacation or something like that. And I said, well, before you run and do anything, check your postprandial, see what your blood sugar is after a high carb meal, one hour after and two hour after. So now he wants to ask the group. And I also told him to get an A1C. So that was my input. But what do you guys think about all this? I would definitely. I don't know that A1C is a great indicator. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, I think it's a good indicator. And, and I was going to ask you can now get A1C uh, monitors off of Amazon. So we can monitor that stuff ourselves without having to get really? blood work done. Really? Oh, yeah. They, well, they let sell me monitors just the same way they sell glucometers. And okay. yeah, go ahead. Well, here's why I say that. A1C is cumulative. It's more over the last few months. Three, you three could months. become more. Yeah. You could become more insulin resistant in the last couple of weeks, and it may not show on your past A1C. So uh, it, there's. I think what I'm saying is there's a little bit of a lag. I think that, well, that your current blood sugar levels have a little bit better or a little bit more of a they're a better indicator i think of what's going on right now like as I an would, example he could have been like super clean and everything had a good a1c then he went on vacation for a week and a half and ate like dog shit and came back and he has he's running high fasted glucose and that it may stay that way for a couple weeks or yeah. a week or whatever but I don't think that I've seen people have fasted blood glucose that it, it starts just going up in the morning, like after they've been fasted for a certain length of time, then it starts climbing back up. So my thought on getting an A1C is let's see if you're ha- are you having a long term health issue here? You know That's what I'm saying? With that. Exactly. Are you having a long term health issue here that we're not recognizing? Like I work with another guy who's like, "Hey, I've had a really time. I've had a really hard time losing fat. You know, he just he's always struggled. And my previous coach had me on all this growth hormone and all this gear, and it still was. And, it, and he was kind of ashamed of how much gear he was using. And uh, we got an A1C and found out that he was borderline diabetic. So he had never tested his blood sugar before. So to me. I think what we're seeing here is you're saying that that's too long, but I'm saying one reading is too short. Well, what I'm saying, I should be more clear. I'm saying not to rely on one, because if you rely on the the A1C, then you have the current condition of your blood sugar levels. Then if you rely on fasted, there's a, a... quite a few variables in there too, because you even know that when you run keto for a long period of time, you can have, uh, right. you know, issues with fasted blood sugar levels in the morning. So 
a better way to put it would be they all need to be taken into consideration, but not. I don't know that one more than than any of the other than the other two or three. I think that they're all they all need to be measured or or used together to accurately sure. assess what's going on to get a complete. Well, picture. Do you guys also? Yeah. Do you guys also request that people get their insulin checked when they're doing their labs? Because then you can use the HOMA IR scale and figure out where they sit, right? If they're, if they, if the, you guys know what the HOMA IR is? If I was working with him, I would have him get his insulin checked. Uh, okay. Checked. That's, is that a word? It's che- che- checked. I thought you were saying check, checked in. Checked but. in. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was saying. Checked in. Also, um, I'll just throw it out there too that Alto Labs has A1C for like 12 bucks. So. Yeah, go get it real quick. But, but do you guys understand what I was talking about about the home IR scale? Like yes. it's a quick and easy thing I don't, to calculate. Where yeah, so you, run it down. So though. Bas- yeah, so basically you take their blood sugar and they, it also takes their insulin at the same time, so that it gives a comparative as to how much insulin is needed to take care of this blood sugar. Basically, that, that's it in a nutshell, right? So there's a bunch of calculators out there. You can use that one. There's the quickie scale. There's several of these indices out there that you could put in your fasted glucose, your fasted insulin levels, and that will give you a breakdown as to how insulin sensitive or insensitive someone is. Like for instance, if someone is over uh, 2.0 on the HOMA scale, their insulin sensitivity is sliding, and that'll be backed up by their H1C and their fasted glucose. So that's why I think like the, the trump card of all those is, yeah, okay, you start doing fasted glucose with somebody, and you know three, four readings back to back to back, it's high. Okay, then you look at the H1C. It confirms that it's high. It confirms that they've had sliding insulin sensitivity for a while. Then you get the labs done, and you look at the insulin, the blood sugar, you put it, you put it into one of these um, calculators and you can determine, okay, yeah, this is based off their insulin production release based off their blood sugar. This is what's really going on. And I think all three of those are great tools. Yeah, I could see that. And I think covered it perfectly. (laughs) And and what about, I'll add one more thing that, cause like you said, Skip, there could be a lot of variables with fasted. So his other question was, what I had mentioned to him about testing postprandial to see, do you guys ever test to see how people respond to a carb meal? Well, but do you see this? Sometimes someone will wake up and they will be tending on the higher side. Let's say like 94, 96, something like that regularly. But then you, you're like, okay, I want you to do exactly what you're saying. I want you to eat your meals. Let's say we got 60 grams of carbs per meal and you're testing their postprandial at two hours exactly every meal on the dot. And at two hours on the dot, they're always back down to like 89. Well, to me, yeah. that tells me they got good insulin sensitivity. They're just having a little right. bit of, an, of a higher release of um, glucagon in the morning. Maybe, and the other thing we're not bringing up is why is their blood sugar or why are they losing insulin sensitivity if that is the case? Yes. Or is it a is it an overfeeding thing? Is it a stress thing? Is it a lack of sleep thing? Because just a night of sleep, you start to lose um, your insulin sensitivity due to the uh, lack of translocation of the GLUT4 receptors. But so there's a lot of variables when someone has high blood sugar. It, it could be that you're feeding them too much and then they're, they're just not doing enough activity. It could be a stress-related response or it could be something else related to insulin, glucagon, cortisol, one of those other hormones. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, I hope that helps him. What else did we have here, guys? We have- I got one more thing to add, actually. Yeah. One more thing to add. Because he also he asked for like how, how else do you determine your insulin sensitivity oh, yeah. besides these calculators, besides these meters that we can use, besides the blood work. Um, well, I, I have yet to see somebody with really poor insulin sensitivity that is hungry every two hours. 
Meaning like hmm. think about your contest prep people. Like you just know their insulin sensitivity is good. You don't even need them to check anymore unless you're doing like a, a really high skip load or, or a refeed day because you just know when they're reporting on their check-ins, eat my meal 30 minutes later, I could eat all over again. It, even if they're eating a lot of carbs too. So I do yeah. think hunger and satiety um, are, are, are um, can be used as a, as preliminary markers at least. That's a good point. All right. How about this one here? Um, He's asking about a uh, question for the next show. Does injecting sterile oil uh, into a muscle before training um, done to create a crazy pump, uh, will this result in more gains in the long run? So, okay. So I, I can only attribute this to, to using like an SEO type product. I think that's what he's referring to, right? Okay. Yeah. So I think he just said sterile oil. So he's, I think, yeah, I think he's, about, yeah, I think he's just saying like almost versus an SEO, yeah. just something that would take up space. Isn't that prior isn't that what to SEO training? Is? To, it is, but I think sterile oil wouldn't have, well, depending on the, the SEO, because you could argue that some of them are much thinner where the old school sure. ones are so much thicker and viscous and they're going to stay there longer. So Okay. Yeah, and the original ones yeah, had like all sorts of like lidocaine and weird stuff in it, like okay. that. You know, between pump and pose, and between yeah, um, right, all, the, all the different brands. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I guess is it going to create? I, I, okay, when I've done that, I wouldn't say I have a better pump. I feel like I have like a rock in my like. Let's say biceps. <laughs> I feel like I have rocks in my biceps. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it doesn't really feel great. I mean, it kind of feels good, but then you're like, man, there's like almost too much stuff in there that I can't get a good pump. Yeah. I, I don't know if you guys have a but lot of But it visually looks like a big pump. I mean, if you do it the right way. feel like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're doing it the right way. But does it cause growth? I think the argument stands from, from years ago that the only real growth potential there is the fact that it could, and I still can't say that it does, but it could help to stretch fascia to make more fascia. room if fascia were a limiting factor for for growth. But it, it, growth does it cause growth at the like mus at the muscle cell level? level? No. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah, I'd agree one hundred percent. On that point, like I, I'm actually against doing SEO right before you go to the gym and training that muscle group, just because I feel like when the muscle already has that much stuff in it, then you're throwing blood in there. I just feel like you're opening up opportunity to tearing something that it just kind of makes sense to me that that would happen. So like for me, like an SEO, I tell people to do it right before bed so that you're sleeping through that inflammation pain part of it. And when, by the time you wake up, some of that's died down a little bit and you're like, oh, my arms are just full. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like it, okay, I don't want to get off on a tangent. But can I real quick? Because I think this is important Get and I'm wondering what you guys think. Just real, real quick though. Gear timing pre-workout versus post-workout versus, and I'll tell you why. I prefer it post-workout because pre you get into that thing where, look, I think I lose contractile force. I huh. don't think, and so, and I always, I always go left and right. Like if I'm doing, uh, you know, quads or I'm doing delts or whatever, I will go left or right. I will not do one over the other because then I have an imbalance, and especially when there's a limiting 
I think it limits contractile force. I don't feel the muscle contract as hard. I'm not usually as strong in the muscle if I were to inject prior. So I inject afterwards, and I feel like the muscle is still warm. There's a little bit more blood flow than had I not trained at all. Now, I'm not going to race home and go, oh, yeah, i got to hurry up and get, you know, it's not like this anabolic window. It's just that within those few hours afterwards, I find that that's the best time, and it's tolerated the best from the standpoint of the muscle being injected versus I feel like when it's cold, which is another reason that I actually heat up the um, under warm running water. I heat up the actual compound, the the syringe, always, especially if it's DHB. But anyway, um, again, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent. But I think that it's <laughs> you're in about line to get off on another one. About, <laughs> yeah, you know, but I think it's in line with what we're talking about. It, but okay, then let's bring it back yeah. to the SEO. Yeah. Would you do it no, afterwards versus before? Yeah. Well, like you said, I would Andrew, say, you said after, right? Like before bed. I would say do it right before bed so that you sleep through the pain of it. The you know because your arms can throw up when you're putting three cc's in two different spots. Like that's six cc's in, in, in the in the biceps mm-hmm. and in the tri. So like I, I'd rather sleep through that personally. But to answer your question about the gear, I agree with you about the contractibility. I guess um, like if you, if you do your delts right. Yeah, let's say you do a rear delt shot. This is the biggest example I can think of. You do a rear delt, you do both rear delts, and then you're trying to do a rear delt exercise. All you feel is like inhibition, I guess is the best way to right. put it. Like you can't get yep. the muscle all the way back. So I 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. For me with injections, I think doing it before bed because I take a shower before bed. My body's cleanest. My skin's warm. Um, I, to me, that's what time makes the most sense unless I'm using something that will have an effect on my workout, such as an oral or a fast, you know, test or a fast, um, you know, one of the, one of the injectile methyl trends or something like that. Well, then the takeaway here is not necessarily that, okay, it's post-workout or before bed, but it's not pre-workout, which is what yeah. I guess yeah, I no. was coming around to. No. So whether it's oil no. or whether it's gear or anything, I don't think injecting anything pre-workout is a great, unless it's. I agree. You know, unless you're going to get into, you know, there's there's growth and there's insulin that's different, but that's from a, different. from a, yeah, exactly. I agree. All with right. you. Um, let's see here. So, Ghost BC says a uh, question for the next show: feeder workouts. Have you guys ever experimented with this? Rich Piana, uh, RIP, used to mention them to do them at night with light weight to get as much blood as possible into the muscle. He was thinking of this because his forearm to arm uh, ratio does not match and his buys and tries need to improve seems like uh forearms get a pump daily because i tend to activate them more than i'd like to and they are a good size and even have way more muscle maturity than uh the other muscles i've never worked out forearms directly lol but i need these arms to grow and i've tried everything well, hopefully he listened to the first half of the podcast. So there's that. I know what the LOL means. He's never trained forearms directly. Oh, get it. LOL. You guys that. You guys are slacking. You guys were slacking. I picked up on it. <laughs> I, I, I read you. No, I think um, for, for muscle growth, I think that's not a good idea. Um, I think for a cosmetic effect, possibly in terms of, like you guys have probably done this where you have a client go and do what you call like a pump workout or a loading workout uh, before a show, literally just to facilitate pushing more carbs, get them super insulin sensitive to facilitate pushing more carbs into the muscle. And we're not talking about a workout even. It's more like 
two sets of chest, two sets of shoulders, two sets of back, like nothing to failure, just to facilitate blood flow and, and increase the glucose uptake of the cells because glycogen synthetase is going to be working overtime then. Um, but I don't think the idea of doing these, uh, what do you call them, feeder, feeder workouts, I, I think, yeah. I mean, I'm bringing myself back to like, like reading cycles for pennies the first time and all the stupid things that Dante talked about seeing and people do in the gym that were inhibiting their muscle growth. And I see this as one mm. of those things that's just going to cut into your recovery. Um, yep. It, yeah. It's just going to cut in your recovery. I'll leave it at that. I don't think I need to add anything else. Yeah. If you need to add, if you're going to get a lot of blood flow, you're basically wasting glycogen on what is not a productive workout. Now I see feeder. I don't think feeder workouts are a bad idea, but I would see a feeder workout as two to three sets of light, of one light exercise, it's more like an isolation movement the night before or the morning before an evening workout that does more for neural connection than it does for blood flow or anything along. He was talking more primarily about blood flow. And I think as soon as you are, the more pump you're getting, the, essentially the more fuel you're wasting hmm. for that yeah, to train that I, muscle. And I, I think that's a, that's a bad idea. Well, how is I guess do you guys have an idea of what he how he's setting it up? Like, is he doing a feeder workout the night before he's doing his main workout for that body part? Is he doing it what on it sounds off like. days? Okay, yeah, I don't agree with That's that. That's how it reminds am. me of um, yeah, yeah kind of reminds me of uh, remember uh, that bodybuilder? I think it was like he was a Canadian guy, big in the '90s, Olympian Charles. Was it like Grawl or something like that? You know what I'm talking about? He, oh, he was in all yeah. the mock videos. Okay. Well, anyway, he yeah, would, yeah. let's say he trained his delts and triceps on a, on a Monday. Yeah. He would go in on Tuesday and he would do like half his workout for the shoulders again, like the, some of the same exercises, but a little bit lighter. And huh. he, he claimed that that facilitated blood flow to enhance recovery and make him grow faster. And to me, I'm like, you're only, you're only getting away with that because you're a genetically elite pro. Like, yeah. Grows I've off seen of all sorts you know of really I mean? good pros who do some crazy stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it, I do. And it works you know, despite yeah. what they're doing, not yeah, because yeah. of what they're doing. Yeah, that, that's right. the big distinction. Right. It works despite love, what they're doing, not because of what they're doing. Like when a, I like when a really good pro who I've I've had this happen explain to me how he does his bicep curls a certain way so he can hit the peak. I mean, the guy mm -hmm. had the best peaks you'd see in your entire life, mm -hmm. but I think it was. You know, despite what he was doing with his his arm his, training, his, uh, right? his baby picture when he's in the womb is like yeah. he's got this like double stack peak bicep. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'll be curious if you guys know anything about this one because it's something I have no experience with. I've heard of it, but that's about it. Question for BSG: Do you guys have any experience with subutramine uh, or similar compounds? Uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it over here in the Balkans. Hell yeah. I want to I know where this guy trains. I want to see his gym because I feel like a gym in the Balkans would be freaking wild. Uh, pretty much nobody knows about it. Uh, my coach even asked me not to tell anyone. Well, it's, on, it's pretty public now. Uh, not to tell anyone around here. Honestly, it's a prep hack. Anybody can get shredded with it if you ask me. Uh, if you know any, if you have any experience or know any, any more knowledge about it, I would like to hear about any possible side effects or whatever you think about it. Um, I've used it for the last three preps and I would never uh, again do a prep and go through last week's without it. Subutrin. 
I've never used it with myself or anybody. I know what it is, and I know it's more popular in Europe. Um, is it? Yeah, it like I've heard of other Europeans. I think it's an. It, it, it might yeah, have been used like an inhibitor. What is it? Of it goes by a ni- it different inhi- name. It's like it inhibits reuptake of serotonin and norepinephrine. Yeah, Meridia. Yep, there, you there you go. There you go. I couldn't remember I think what it that was. That was a flash in the pan in the U.S. in the 2000s. Yeah. Like, I feel like yeah. I read about it in muscular development in the drugs section. Maybe Dave or somebody did like a little spiel on it, how you use it. I don't think it really took off over here because you got Clen, you got T3, you got cardio, you, you know, like it's so not it's a, a go to. Things that actually norepinephrine and serotonin. <laughs> norepinephrine and, yeah. and serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Yeah. So you would feel, I mean, that means you would have more F or more, um, um, norepinephrine. Here's where, I could think of, yeah, here's where I think it could help. I think when you're using it, say with like clenbuterol and other stims that increase norepinephrine, I think it'll mm. amplify the effect in the same way that like a GHRH will amplify a GHRP. You know what I'm saying? Like the CJC to the to the GHRP six, I feel like it probably amplifies the effect uh, longer. And you're messing with serotonin too, so like now your serotonin's higher. Yeah, I can see it being but, weird for some people, you know. Sure. Well, you have a fire the way, gotta, when you're ripping through a lot of wood, and then all of a sudden you're like, "That's not a big enough fire. I'm going to throw three gallons of gasoline on it." <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I, really, that's really what I, I don't see it being beneficial. And, and let's call space bay. If it were that good we would have a lot of experience with it because we would have been using it and it would be used by the vast majority of people in what is arguably the leading country for bodybuilding, nutrition, supplementation, and uh, I don't want to say cutting edge because that's cliche, but um, methods and everything. And it's not, I don't think it's used. If it's used, it's used incredibly minimally. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd be real careful with it if I were him too. Just I think about post prep, the come down that you can have from that. You know, you're coming off That's the so gear, true. you're coming off the clen. Mm-hmm. Now you're coming off this drug that kept your serotonin and norepinephrine high. What's you know how? Mm-hmm. I, oh man, I feel well, like it would be add like also, garbage. You're losing your fit. You're physically fading in the sense you're losing your cuts that you're not as diced as you were and that has a major effect on people's mentality and their their depression levels and all that kind of stuff so like you're saying scott you add in a chemical component to that to amplify it yeah i mean we're already yeah you're already really messing with that stuff you know with the with the things we're using so i'd be careful yeah i also want to point out he's got a hilarious bodybuilding podcast like his uh his commentary is Oh, dude, it's like, I think I told you guys one oh, time. Oh, that's like, him. Me and my buddy, yeah, me and, me and Nate Spear, we were watching his breakdown of like the Texas Pro from last year. And we got like tree high, man. We were like, we were like, we were so high. But like, he was like breaking down the show. <laughs> and he was like, he was like complimenting, you know, like I Florian, who was an open guy and moved to classic. Yeah. He was like complimenting him and then doing like three disses like in a backhanded compliment kind of way like me and nate were literally on the ground like crying laughing and i had to send it to all my buddies and they're like dude you're right this is the funniest podcast so dude you got a great entertaining show i love it yeah when you told me that i went i didn't watch that one but i watched like three other of his videos he has really good delivery too you know like he he does a good job people should check him out especially if they enjoy like the competitive side of bodybuilding yes um all right 
we got one from Raiden Sky here. Who? Oh, I met Raiden out at the uh, out at FIBO. From question for the Mortal Kombat? Uh, no, different Raiden Sky. Uh, oh, okay. uh, question for the next podcast: How can I determine my skin thickness? Every time I try to cut, I get to a certain point. My body seems to refuse to get lower with body fat. When I go tanning, my abs are full and the uh, with veins. Um, but when I crunch my abs, um, it it's it looks fat AF. Um, surely there's still body fat to lose, um, but is there a way, a test to find out if I might also have thicker skin that makes it harder to get detailed and separated looking? I bulked up pretty hard once beyond 25%. Um, also, I got stretch marks uh, from the time on my stomach. Thanks for your help. I saw him in person. Who's going to I saw him in person. He just needs to get leaner. Oh. I, I saw his, yeah. I saw his abs. He looks good. He's his he's lean now, but now he's at the point where he just needs to keep going, and that's all yeah. it's going to take. Because I literally I was standing right there with him. Yeah. Skin thickness is body fat. The only exception uh, to that uh, would be collagen. The only exception to that is collagen. That when you're younger, uh, you could have you know like as an example, uh, you know Jay Cutler has um, he was ripped shredded and he had thicker skin victor martinez is another good example he had um they both had thicker skin because they could carry a higher body fat level because of the shape of everything underneath it you look you could do this with a lot of competitors there everybody is fighting for the shredded grainy ridiculously thin and and there's a lot of people who lose a lot of muscle getting down to that condition or fighting to get to that and if they had the shape, that's the bitch with, you know, our us also rands or mediocre bodybuilders. We have to find where that balance is. And sometimes it's not about getting or fighting to get mm-hmm. as shredded as you possibly can because you could lose another 10 pounds and you don't look as good as you did 10 pounds heavier and you're not really any leaner. Hmm. So there's a collagen component because as we lose that, that's the grainy. People call it muscle maturity. I laugh at that. It's basically you lose collagen and your thin, your skin becomes thinner as you get older. It's it's older skin. You get yeah. grainier. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, we had some more. I'll also say one thing. One thing. Yeah. If you had, because, and I know we've all dealt with clients with this that want to do a show and they really, really bloomed up, heavy body fat, and then they diet down and they have the loose skin around their abdominals. And people are always asking, like, well, when's this going to go away? And I've seen it go one way where somebody loses all of that and it looks like they never had skin flaps. And I've had other people get peeled everywhere. And the only thing that's going to fix it is cosmetic surgery. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things that if, if, if you overbulked and permabulked for a long period of time, you might need to be ready to have to go see a surgeon if you really want to have that skin sit tight to your abdominals without having to like tuck it and push down with, with your hands. Yeah. Raiden's not and one that's of those why guys. Older guys seen, his skin was tight. Okay. Yeah. His skin was good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And if you're an older cool. guy, you're a master's competitor, you're almost always going to deal with loose skin at some point. You better make sure that your ass is full. It's the bane Mm -hmm. of a master's competitor because, yes, you need to be in condition, but I would rather, if it's me and I'm getting on a master stage, I'm going to err a little bit on the side of being more full so that, you know what, maybe I'd take second, Mm -hmm. but my ass don't look fucking old like I got old skin. (laughs) There's older guys battle with that because it's a reminder that you're busting your butt and you're doing everything you used to do and you're in great shape and you're in great condition, but the skin is not as elastic as it used to be when you were younger. It's just the way it is. 
All right, we are out of time for this episode, guys. Uh, that said, uh, before we leave, Skip, can you give us some fatherly advice? It has nothing to, nothing to do with bodybuilding. I want to. I want something from you. What's what's one piece of fatherly advice that you can share with us? Yeah, today? I did this. Somebody said this on the yeah because I said that you that the guy who which congratulations to him. He, I didn't know he won ten grand for that. That's pretty impressive. I didn't know what report, the you're sure. talking about. Oh, this is. Oh, oh okay. are you serious? I thought yeah, this, I, this is coming from. No, okay, I just yeah, literally. Somebody, somebody said, you're going on without us. You're having a conversation on okay, your own that's here. Funny. <laughs> I thought there are people who are no watching who probably saw the comment about. on Facebook. Oh, shit. I know okay. the comedy's uh, talking about, I but I was just asking for some fatherly advice for the for the listeners. Oh. Yeah, I, I can't come with any right off the top of my head, but I'm yeah, just can. trying to be helpful. What, 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 well, tell us what was your advice to him? Um, just to make sure that he he because he won ten grand, and the IRS will get you for that. Yeah, if you don't report it as a as a game like a gambling and but they'll wait they'll wait two three four five years and they're gonna they'll nail you with the penalties and the fees and there is no way out of it because you won that money so it's you're better off claiming it right away or keeping a portion of it back claim it right away paying it and get it done and being happy that you won it and you get to spend the money without the IRS worrying about the irs five years later shout out to jake he looked fantastic we, we put his pictures up in the last episode yeah all right Guys, go to bodyberry.com. Reach out to Andrew for some coaching. Go to teamskip.com. Reach out to Skip for some coaching, but not at the same time. Reach out to me, McNallyDiets at gmail.com. Same thing. I'd be happy to talk to you about coaching. And, of course, check out our sponsors. As I mentioned, truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK, supplementsource.ca for great deals that change week to week for our Canadians and Strom Sports Nutrition for those of you in the U.K. Great health supplements great health stacks and some performance stuff too guys for another episode of blood sweat and gear we'll see you soon